Well, as many of you might remember, when we had our yearly church um, meeting, we talked about supporting missions. And we, in fact, put a budget line this year in our budget to put money towards supporting missionaries and training missionaries. So with that in mind, we've asked um, Eric Weathers to come and speak to us today. He presented the TMAI schools and what they're doing this morning from 9 to 10. And we've asked him also to open the Word of God and talk to us, preach to us about missions. Uh, Eric is SVP of Strategic Partnerships. He interacts with TMAI supporters. That's uh, the Master's Academy International. He preaches at churches in the United States and around the world where he promotes TMAI's global pastoral training centers. That's what we really want to hear from him about. We already have, and we want to support pastor training centers in other cultures and other nations. With more than 6,000 graduates in 70 countries, TMAI currently has over 2,000 international students preparing to pastor local churches. Eric completed his Master of Divinity and Doctor of Ministry at the Master's Seminary, and I heard that he left just as my wife and I and family were moving there. He had graduated. Um, The Weathers are commissioned missionaries from Countryside Bible Church in South Lake, Texas, where Eric preaches in Sunday school and leads a home fellowship group. Eric and his wife, Debbie, have two married children and three grandchildren. Eric, come and open up the Word of God for us. Thank you, Michael. Good morning. It is a privilege to be here. I know that um, Michael and I have been talking about doing this for quite some time, and with the obvious events that changed uh, the world this past year, uh, it was hard to find a spot, but we finally landed on today, and so we have been praying for you uh, for this event. I bring greetings to you from my own church. As pastor said, uh, our home church is Countryside Bible Church in South Lake. Perhaps you've heard of our pastor, Tom Pennington. And even right now at this hour, our, uh, my, my, my Sunday school class is praying for us. They know we're here, and they uh, know that you're here and are excited to see what God would do this morning. I want to say thanks, too, for John for putting us up last night. Great um, uh, honor to take care of us, Debbie and I. I want to point out a couple of things before I get started. Um, I asked the question during Sunday school class. The question, who's ever heard of TMEI? And if you've heard of it, at least raise your hand. So there's a number of you because you were here last hour. Now, okay, so here's the trick, right? Um, Keep your hands up. If you could fill 30 seconds and talk about TMEI, could you do it? Keep your hands up. Okay, who am I going to call on? No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) I wouldn't do that to you. Uh, As I mentioned last hour, John MacArthur in a staff meeting about a year and a half ago said that TMEI is the world's best kept secret and world missions. And I was prepared for that because I'd heard him say it before. And I said, yes, Pastor John, but we're here to change that. And you can help me change that, okay? We can put a voice to TMAI and how we're training pastors the world over. As we said, we have about 6,000 graduates and 2,000 current students learning to preach in their own languages, uh, by and large, trained by their own people, right? So you can help us. Uh, There's a card back here I would invite you to fill out, just right back uh, towards the window over there. If you fill it out, uh, at the end of today, I'll give the cards to Pastor, and, and we will draw two of them. And two people will have an opportunity to choose whatever MacArthur book is back there in the bookstore, and that will be yours, complimentary of TMAI. We're doing that because we want people to hear about our ministry, and 
One way to do that is to send you an email about once or twice every month, and you can kind of get a snapshot of what's going on around the world. I also brought with me uh, TMEI's devotional. We don't sell these unless you want to buy it. I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to take money for this. So we give them away. Uh, this is a, uh, it's a devotional, one for every page in the book, and it's written by our pastors and graduates from the Master's Academy International the world over. You can read through this and look at the name, look at where they're writing from, and think about how the Lord has trained them up to train even God's people uh, to do the work of the ministry, to encourage you right here in uh, the San Antonio, Bernie area. So I think there's probably some more back there, uh, just one per family if that would be all right. Okay, as uh, you heard, we are in Acts chapter 10. If you haven't turned there already, feel free to do so now, and uh, we'll get this going. So as we think about Acts chapter 10, and I won't need to read it again since Pastor already did that, TMAI is a great commission ministry. TMAI is a great commission ministry, and we train the next generation of men on a global scale to preach God's word in their own languages so that the people and their own churches are equipped to do the work of the ministry, much like this church right here. So this is what our function is, to be able to do that in their own little towns and villages and even major cities around the globe. Acts chapter 10, how does this fit into uh, world missions? Acts chapter 10 is an example of the Great Commission at work shortly after Jesus issued that great commission to his 11 disciples. Uh, as you can see on the screen, I hope, the title for today's message is The Exclusive Inclusive Gospel. It is the exclusive inclusive gospel. The gospel is exclusive and yet it is inclusive. Acts chapter 10 verses 1 through Acts chapter 11 verse 18 is the longest narrative in the book of Acts. Uh, Luke, at the bequest of the Holy Spirit, spent a lot of time on this particular topic because it was important. It was about reaching the ethnicities for Christ, and so he spent more time here on any other narrative than right, right here in this text. Acts chapter 10, if you think about it, it transports us back to the first century region of Samaria. Samaria. Think of Israel. Think of uh, the nation of Israel, Samaria, is kind of in the middle, and Acts chapter 10 takes place between Jerusalem and Galilee with the narrative taking place on, uh, towards Caesarea on the coast. More specifically, it takes us to an area separated by a 30-mile walk, Caesarea and Joppa. Uh, Joppa and Caesarea, to walk there and back would take you four days. So that gives you an idea, 30 miles along the coast, Probably a beautiful walk. If you like walking on the beach, I'd have the sense that that's probably not what happened back in that day. But Samaria is known in the Bible as one of the most marginalized people in the area experiencing the sin of partiality. You know what the sin of partiality is. We redefine the sin of partiality in our culture, and we call it racism. Racism. So they are experiencing the sin of uh, partiality, you'll recall that Jesus shattered Jewish norms while traveling through Samaria to ask a woman, the woman at the well, for a drink of water, right? It was scandalous that he spoke to a Samaritan. It was scandalous that he spoke to a woman. Eh, this is because they are prone, given to the sin of partiality. Jesus is meeting with the Samaritan woman 
was scandalous indeed. And in John chapter 4, verse 9, uh, we read that Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jews have no dealing with people of their kind. You ever get the sense of that in our culture? They separated themselves from those kinds of people. Jesus gave the gospel to the marginalized, and his racial enemies despised him for doing so. Nevertheless, he continued to move on and to give the gospel. And as repulsive as that was, it paled in comparison to the Jewish hatred of the ethnicities, of other ethnicities, especially Roman military occupiers in their own country. I mean, wouldn't you hate it if another nation came and took you over and made you, forced you to be obedient to their laws and to scrap your culture? They didn't like those people. Don't forget, Israel long thought that their Messiah would be a military conqueror. They thought that their Messiah would be the one who would come in to overthrow Rome and the entire Roman system. From their perspective, Jesus, if he didn't overthrow Rome, then he's no savior to them. Theirs was a political savior. The Lord Jesus Christ didn't participate in cultural or racial strife. He came to seek and to save the lost. That's the message of today's text, but why? Because Romans 3, all, you and me and everybody else who's ever lived or ever will live, except for Christ himself, is under sin's curse. For none, not even one person, is righteous nor seeks for God. Today, more than ever, this is a message that needs to be proclaimed and applied, Acts 10. We can confidently say that the Great Commission came to Samaria in a very real and profound way, and it alone is the eternal solution to ethnic strife. Emphatically, nothing else will work to fix racism. It just won't. The gospel is what does that. You're going to see that what occurs in our text leads to a permanent dismantling of racism. Permanent dismantling. Here's what I mean by an eternal cessation of the sin of partiality. Acts 10 is a reminder of a future day in heaven when as we see in Revelation chapter 7 verse 9, if you're taking notes, Revelation 7, 9, that believers from all ethnicities will spend eternity together. Let me read that text to you, uh, Revelation 7, 9. He says this, Behold, a great multitude which no one can count. How many were there? Nobody could count them. Where are they from? The text says they're from every ethnicity and tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne, before the Lamb, saying with a loud voice, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. An eternal destruction to the sin of partiality, to the sin of racism. We won't be there together with our Lord for those who have called on Christ, for those who are in him. Do you yearn for that day? Think about this past year. Do you really yearn for that day to be with people from every ethnic racial group of the entire planet? If you don't, check your heart because that's eternity. And if that's not the eternity you want, then you don't want that eternity. 
I'm looking forward to that day to spend time with brothers and sisters in Christ from every ethnicity, every tribe and tongue from around the entire world that God has tarried to allow us to be a part of their lives. It's time to place intense focus on God's method for reconciling people from every ethnicity to himself forever. It starts here. It starts in the church. You know what? It starts in this church. This church is where racial reconciliation takes place. Matthew chapter 28. We looked at that in Sunday school this morning. I just want to refresh everybody's memory I'm not here to preach the Great Commission, but I want to refresh our memory. Matthew 28, the Great Commission, here it goes. But the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And they saw him, and they worshiped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up, and he spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples. That's what you're to do, make disciples. What's a made disciple? He describes it here. Make disciples of all nations. The word is ethnicities. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, everything. And I am with you always to the end of the age. That's the great commission. That's what happens in Caesarea. That's what happens between Caesarea and Joppa. And you know what? Peter was there. Peter is in the text in chapter 10 of Acts. He was there with Jesus. He was there with the rest of the disciples, and he heard the great command. It was an imperative with an exclamation point. You must go and make disciples, and Peter did just that. He heard the Lord's directive. He was the primary recipient of Jesus's command to make disciples of all races. So Acts chapter 10, it demonstrates that Peter never forgot Jesus' order to teach and to baptize and to make disciples of all the ethnicities of the world. And now he's met with a challenge. One guy, what's he going to do? Is he going to disobey the laws of Israel? Or will he meet with this Roman centurion, effectively Israel's enemy, and will he share the gospel with him? Jesus told his disciples that they would be his witnesses to the remotest parts of the planet. And that means, for Peter's purposes, non-Jewish people to Gentiles and to the ethnicities of the world, including this man, Cornelius. Cornelius, a Roman centurion whose job it was to dominate Israel, to place Israel under the thumb of Rome. I'd ask you to give that a little more thought. For a Jew like Peter, if we could just be a part of his culture, which we're not, but try to imagine taking the gospel message to, a, to diverse ethnicities, he'd have to resolve at least three major problems, three significant issues to reach somebody of a different culture with the truth. First, he'd have to answer the question, must Gentiles be required to convert to Judaism prior to becoming Christians. That was a serious issue back then. There was a lot of Jewish people who were believers who said, no, they got to be Jews first, and then they can become Christians. He had to answer that question. Second, must Gentile believers be circumcised like by their, or like their Jewish brethren? And third, 
What about the kosher dietary laws? Those ordinances banned, think outlawed. It was against the law. It was against the law. What about those Jewish dietary laws? It banned or outlawed Jews from eating with people of other races. You couldn't even sit down at the table with them. You couldn't enter their house. You couldn't eat their food. Peter was given the Great Commission. Peter, you must go and you must make disciples. Well, how are you ever going to come the cultural differences, Peter? He had to face that problem. We believers love to talk about the Lord over meals, don't we? I do. You'll probably tell a little bit. We love to talk about the Lord over meals. Sometimes it's the easiest place to do so. You know, I've been in places in the world where they eat things that you would never, ever consider edible. I mentioned this last hour, but I didn't tell them what it was. So in Malawi, anybody ever been there? Spoiler alert, no? In Malawi, uh, everywhere, the, uh, all over the street, street corners, they're selling food. And the, the delicacy there for the people is 10 mice barbecued on a stick. Lots of salt on it, but that's what they eat. Think about that as Peter is faced with something similar. Welcome to Acts chapter 10, where impossible ethnic disparities are resolved. Do I eat the mouse? Right? Does Peter eat the things that God brings before him? Does he sit in front of Gentile people in their own houses, knowing that at any minute he could be arrested and hauled off to jail? You want to go? Want to be a missionary? May I make one point pointedly personal for you this morning, specifically you, regardless of your ethnicity? the color, the amount of melanin in your skin. For God to save you, you must believe in Jesus' gospel so that you can be redeemed. That was the message that Peter was commanded to give this Roman soldier, Cornelius, and his whole family and his friends. Our text provides five scenes to highlight the exclusivity of the gospel of salvation. We're going to bring these up on the screen. The first one is our first indication of gospel restrictiveness. There we go. Salvation is for people of any ethnicity. And we saw this as Pastor read through verses 33 through 35. Let me read them again. Cornelius said, I sent for you, speaking to Peter, I sent for you immediately, and you have been kind enough to come Now then, we are all here, present before God, to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. Verse 35, But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. First, let me set the stage. If we were to read the whole account, which we don't have time, but I would encourage you as families to go home and take a look at it. Acts chapter 10, verses 1 through 8, Luke introduces us to Cornelius. He's a military officer, and he's responsible at least for 100 soldiers. Probably a wealthy man. He had house servants. He had military people appointed to him. He was well-respected. In verse 2, in fact, Cornelius was recognized as being devout. 
He was religious. He was a pious man, the text says. He was reverent toward God and toward the Jewish people. If salvation could be by works, Cornelius would be at the head of the line. Salvation is not by works, and so that's why Peter comes. He has a huge problem, and we can't miss this. Devotion to religion and good works never saved, never saved a single soul. And it wasn't saving Cornelius. There's a problem. Cornelius wasn't saved yet. And how can we be so certain? How do we know for certain that he wasn't saved? Because if we were to fast forward to the next chapter, chapter 11, we'd see in verses 13 and 14 that Cornelius gave a little understanding of what the angel told Cornelius. Cornelius mentioned that the angel told him that Peter would preach words of salvation for a reason, so that he could be saved. You say, but he was a good guy. He gave alms to the Jewish people. He wasn't their enemy individually, personally. He loved them. He cared for them. But he didn't have the message of the gospel, the saving message of the word of truth. So in verse 5, while the man prayed, an angel told Cornelius to bring Peter to Joppa. Immediately, Cornelius summoned three men to get Peter and to bring him back to Caesarea. Again, that's a 60-mile round trip on foot. That's four days of walking, right? It's a long way. It's a small price to pay for the message of salvation, is it not? How many of us would do a 60-mile walk in four days and come back and be, be sure to present somebody with the gospel of Christ? That's how things were back then. But you know what? Still, there was an enormous obstacle. In verse 28, as we've been talking about, it's illegal for a Jew like Peter to associate with people of Cornelius' race. It was a criminal act. We don't really get that in our country. How are they going to convince Peter to violate that decree so that they can hear the gospel message? I would say here's how. God intervenes. He has to shock Peter into reality, shock Peter into the understanding of the great commission that he was given in Matthew 28. That's when God lowers a bunch of animals. When Peter was hungry in verse 10, God lowered a bunch of animals from the sky in a, in a thing like a sheet. Uh, the same word is used for a sail on a ship. God lowers these animals. You've got to think reptiles. Some people like reptiles. I don't. Snakes, crawling bugs, probably spiders and crickets and all kinds of weird stuff. Everything that gives you and me perhaps the willies. You know what the willies is. You see something you don't like and you just go, ooh. So Peter sees all this stuff in this vision and it creeps him out. What's for lunch, we say today? Well, you want what Peter was told to eat. Peter's creepy creature vision isn't so much about killing and eating these animals as much as it is about speaking the words by which people from unclean ethnicities will be saved, Acts 11.14. The Old Testament prohibited Jews from eating these creepy things. They couldn't do it. And so Peter was going to stand fast. In verse 13, he hears a voice from the Lord that demanded Peter to get up and kill and eat. The operative was to eat, but he had to kill it first. Stay with me. In verse 14, Peter was appalled. Peter was appalled at what he was being told to do. This just wasn't right. 
in his mind. He'd never gnawed on anything like what he saw in that sheet. And he wasn't going to start now. He was faithful to the Lord all his life and to the laws of Israel. So in verse 15, watch how God overcomes Peter's objection. Chapter 10, verse 15, we read these words. Again, a voice came to him a second time. It says, what God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy, Peter. God commands Peter with precision. There is no mistaking what God is telling Peter. There's a Greek expert that many of us who have been through seminary know quite well, Daniel Wallace. He says that the point he wants Peter to get is this. Peter, don't you defile what God has made clean, exclamation point. In other words, Peter, get to it. He still struggled with it. That's why in verse 16, Peter was told a third time that it's okay to eat. But here's why. You see, God removed the dietary restrictions so that Peter could eat the man's food and stay in his house. You picture Peter showing up and saying, hey, Cornelius, you, you come out here. We've got a social distancing law here. Thought it social distancing new, is new to us. Uh, you stand on this side of the line, and I'm going to tell you the gospel. And if you don't repent, you're going to hell. That's not what happened. God removed the dietary restrictions. Peter, you go to his house, you sit in there, you eat his food, and you tell him the truth. Give him the message of salvation. Jewish food laws were a barrier, a major obstacle, as we said, for Christians trying to reach the Gentiles. They couldn't even be in the same house, much less eat the same food and dine together. Don't allow your own dietary demands to be a hindrance for the message of the gospel for people who aren't saved. If, if you're going to offend people, don't do it with your food. Do it with the gospel. And that's what Peter was facing. Look again at verse 28, Acts 10, 28. While Cornelius was in the house, uh, Peter reminds the people that he's breaking the law for mingling with the people from his race. Again, he could go to prison for this. How many would be, would be willing to proceed? How many parents would encourage their sons and daughters to go in? It was a different culture, but our culture is not all that different in certain places. God's message wasn't limited to the clean or unclean food. Peter fully understood the extent of the gospel's reach. Here it is. No man or woman of any race is unacceptable or dirty in the sight of God. And they shouldn't be in our sight either. God may grant salvation to people from any ethnicity because God loves these people. Peter resolves to preach the gospel. To Peter, the jail time was worth it. He's going in. Verse 33, as we read, verse 33, uh, Cornelius says that they're all in God's presence. The house is filled with his own family, with people that know him. To hear what the Lord commanded Peter to say. This isn't Peter's message. He's telling Peter, you tell me what God commanded you to tell me. Cornelius required Peter to follow Jesus' instructions from Matthew 28. Shoot straight with us, Peter. 
Don't pull any punches. Tell us like it is. So Peter responds with conviction, doesn't he? Saying that he finally understands that God is not partial. God is not a racist. God is not partial. He's not favorable to individuals of any nation. Look again at verse 34. Again, that word partiality. Since God is holy, he doesn't commit the sin of partiality. One Greek expert defines that word partiality like this. To look upon a person's face and to make unjust distinctions between people by treating one person better than another simply by the way they look or where they're from. Did you know that the Bible never, not even once, calls racism a sin? It's much worse than that. The scripture goes much deeper. You see, the Bible judges people for the sin of partiality, for favoring or disfavoring individuals because of their skin color. You can read more about that in James chapter 2, verses 8 through 9 and verse 13. James 2, 8 through 9 and verse 13. In other words, for Peter and for us, the Great Commission is colorblind. You mustn't show preference because of the level, as I said before, of one's melanin or skin tone. Peter makes this point in verse 35. In verse 35, he uses another Greek word, the word ethnos. You can hear it, from which we get our word ethnicity. Here's what he says, in every ethnicity, the man who fears God and does what is right is welcome. You could say is acceptable to God. So salvation is all-encompassing for people of any ethnicity. But we would say there's a second scene that really accentuates the exclusivity of the gospel here in Acts chapter 10. Our second point is salvation is for people who know Jesus as Lord. You can put up the second one there, guys. Salvation is for people who know that Jesus is Lord, and we see that in verses 36 through 38. You see, while God saves individuals from any ethnic community, not everyone will be saved. Salvation is reserved exclusively for those who know Jesus is Lord. So before we can understand verse 36, we need to define the word know, K-N-O-W, in verse 37. In verse 37, if you look at it, you'll see it, K-N-O-W, know, is about information. Uh, By the structure of that verb, it's about being acquainted with details, the facts of what Cornelius and his guests have already known or been conversant with even before Peter's arrival. He's going to tell them some things that they've known for a period of time. He's going to tell them what it is. Here's a list of the truths which they have known and they've been acquainted for for a while, even before Peter got there. In verse 36, you can see it clearly. They've already known that God sent his message of peace through Jesus Christ to the sons of Israel. Verse 36, they've already heard that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is master over all, including Cornelius' commander-in-chief, a.k.a., do you know who it is at that point in time in history? Caesar, who happened to be Nero. If you haven't looked up Nero, go look up Nero. He's a very wicked despot. That was Cornelius' commander-in-chief. Verse 37 says they've already known the thing, literally The thing is, uh, in the Greek language, the message. The message which God sent through all Judea, which began with John the Baptist's preaching. 
So in verse 38, they've already known about Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth, verse 38 again, they've already understood that God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and with power. Boy, they understood a whole lot of facts. You know what? They believed in Jesus. If somebody said that Jesus never existed, they would have taken issue with it. Verse 38 again. It's a well-known fact that Jesus did good works and healed all who were oppressed, exploited, and dominated, violently treated by who? Verse 38, ultimately the devil, at the hands of violent and wicked people. Why were they so harshly treated in verse 38? Take a close look. It says because God was with them. It was God they hated, and so they treated his people with disdain. So long before Peter arrived in Caesarea, Peter says that their heads were already filled with details about Jesus, that there's a problem, a significant problem. Here it is. Head knowledge filled with unassimilated Jesus trivia never saved anyone. You can have meals with your friends and family. You can say, I know Jesus, but are you in Jesus? Have you turned from sin? Have you trusted Christ? Do you sing his praises, proclaim his word? You see, these people, with their heads filled full of truth, are still destined to eternal destruction unless they've placed their lives under complete submission to Jesus as Lord. As you embrace the exclusive, uh, inclusive gospel, you realize, first of all, that salvation is for people of any ethnicity, and second, it's only for people who know Jesus as Lord, who are in him. To understand the exclusivity of the gospel, there's a third scene in our text, guys, back there. And salvation is for people who testify of Jesus' resurrection. Verses 39 through 41, he does so effectively and clearly. Verse 39 continues Peter's reasoning about what the people in Cornelius' house had already known. He continues with what they've known and discussed amongst themselves. But first, we need to ask the question, Who is included in the word we in verse 39? Who is that? Who's the we? Verse 45 says there are Jewish believers who are with Peter. And in Acts 11, 12, we find out who they are. There were six of them that were with Peter and Cornelius' household. Peter wants the Gentiles to know something they hadn't understood until after his arrival. They knew a lot of facts, but there's some things they didn't know. Whereas they have known all along these things, Peter and the six men with them were actually eyewitnesses of the things that they knew. They saw what happened in Israel. They saw what happened in Jerusalem. Watch how this comes together in verse 39. If you have an ESV translation of the English version of the Bible, verse 39 begins with the word and, as it should. The word and. So verse 39, some English Bibles don't include that helpful word. But here's what Peter is actually saying in verse 39. Uh, All along, he says, you've known the facts for a long time, and, verse 39, we are witnesses to the things that Jesus did all over Israel. We can testify to the things that we saw. Maybe some saw him crucified. Maybe some saw him beaten. Maybe some saw the crown of thorns put on his head. Maybe they saw him healing all those who were sick and ill and ill-treated. Peter lists some of the specific things that these men saw. Here it is, verse 39. They witnessed the Jewish leaders kill Jesus on the cross. 
Verse 40, they saw Jesus alive after his crucifixion because God raised him from the dead three days later. Those in Caesarea didn't see these things, but these guys saw it. Verse 41, God had selected a group of people to see Jesus after he came back to life. They even shared meals together. This is about trusting the eyewitness accounts. These six guys and Peter were there to say we were there. We saw it. We know exactly what happened. Even the Apostle John notes in John 20, verse 39, that their testimonies of what happened are written in the gospel. You remember John chapter 20, verse 31? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. This is the message of the Great Commission. The scripture, we give this to the nations of the world, the ethnicities, so that they can know the Lord. So, here's what the exclusivity of the gospel has shown us so far. Salvation is for people of any ethnicity. That's a given. And it's for individuals who know Jesus as Lord. They're in Christ. Salvation is for those who testify of Jesus' resurrection. Well, there's a fourth scene that stresses the exclusivity of the gospel. Number four, salvation is for people who are forgiven. Let's read verses 42 through 43 again. It says this, And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. I want you to focus in on that word ordered in verse 42. Ordered. It reminds us of what Cornelius demanded of Peter back in verse 33, except for this important detail. Cornelius used a different word for Peter to tell him what the Lord had told him to say. In verse 33, Do you see it? Verse 33, Cornelius uses a Greek word for command. Those of you who have a military background, maybe you're currently in the military. This was a order, uh, an order from a superior officer. It's a command that it's a term used in the military from a higher-ranking officer than Peter himself. Who outranks Peter? God. Jesus is Lord. Jesus outranks Peter. Cornelius, a commanding officer in the military, says, Peter, I don't care about your musings. I want to know what your commander told you to tell me and all who are here in my house. Jesus' first order for Peter is in verse 42. Jesus commanded Peter to preach to the people. In the Great Commission, Jesus demanded Peter to do something. His primary task was to make disciples, to teach disciples, to observe everything that Jesus ever commanded him. That is discipleship. When you're discipling somebody, give them what Scripture says. That's discipleship. Jesus' second order is in the content of what Peter must preach. And it too is in verse 42. You see, he told Peter to solemnly testify that Jesus is the one that God appointed long ages ago to judge the living and the dead. Peter must preach that message or he violates his commanding officer's direct order. 
And it too is in verse 42, as I said. Well, that's just another way of speaking. What we've already seen in verse 36. He, meaning Jesus, is master, is Lord of all. That means that Jesus is judge of all. Peter tells the Gentiles in Greece the same thing in Acts chapter 17, verses 31 through, excuse me, 30 through 31. I'll just read it. He says, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to all men, all people everywhere, that they should repent. It's a message of repentance, Peter. You must preach that message. Verse 31, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So, in Acts 10.43, Peter notes that this encompasses all people, both the living and the dead. None shall escape from Jesus' judgment, except for believers. And we know that because Romans 8.1 says, Therefore, there is now what? No condemnation for those who are in Christ. Even for people in that culture, like our culture, people who would refuse to go to a a different race, a different ethnicity, and eat with them and fellowship with them. There is forgiveness for believers for that sin because we see that there's no condemnation for for those who are in Christ. Well, Jesus gives a third order to Peter in verse 43. Peter must bear testimony that Jesus was appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. He's the one of whom the prophets bore witness And about what did the prophets testify? What did they witness? What did the prophets say? Verse 43, that through Jesus Christ, by his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness. So salvation is exclusively inclusive for all the believing ones. All who in him receive forgiveness for their sins. This is local missions, isn't it? This isn't any different than in the other nations of the world. This is what TMI does. We train the pastors to preach and to disciple their people. Salvation is exclusive for all those who believe, but believe, that word believe is one of the most misunderstood words throughout the entire Bible. People say, I believe all the time. What do you mean by that? Here's a definition, a simple definition for the word believe. You see, believe, uh, by and large, is a present tense in the New Testament. It means believing. Put an I-N-G on it. You are believing, present tense, and it requires receiving God's gift of saving grace and faith in Christ alone. You know something? The world needs this message, doesn't it? Bernie, Texas, San Antonio, Texas needs this message. Towns and villages in China need this message. In India, in Africa, they're no different than us. We need this message. We're all under the same stricken human condition, sin. Are you believing in the Lord Jesus Christ? If no, then you remain in your sins, and God's judgment remains upon you until you turn from sin and trust Christ. You see, the gospel is exclusively inclusive. It's for people from any ethnicity, for those who know Jesus as Lord. It's for you who testify of Jesus' resurrection, and it's reserved for you who are forgiven of your sin. 
Well, let's wrap this up with a final scene, the fifth scene that proves the exclusivity of the gospel. One more scene, guys. Salvation is for people who submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. We see that in verses 44 through 48. Verses 44 through 48, I can read that text. I'm looking at the time here, making sure I have time. It says this, While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers, watch this, all the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse baptism of those who have received the Holy Spirit. And he ordered them to be baptized. We see in this context here that there was an interruption to Peter's preaching. You see, Peter was on a roll, and something happened in verse 43. He was nailing gospel points one right after the other. Cornelius and his whole household were sitting on the edge of their seats, asking, begging for more. They were watching every word that came from Peter's mouth. Then suddenly the Holy Spirit commandeers the Bible study. The Holy Spirit takes over, and Peter's sermon ends mid-sentence. And people get saved. They heard the gospel message. Peter fulfilled his purpose. He ate the food. He stayed in their house. He was faithful, preached the word, and God saved the people. As I said, mid-sentence, God took over with the Holy Spirit, with the Holy Spirit, and he fell on the people. We know that they believed because Acts 11:17 says so. The five solas, if you're not familiar with the five solas, came alive in this house. If you're taking notes, jot it down. The Holy Spirit obliterated any sense of good works-based salvation. They were saved by grace alone. They were saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, by the testimony of God's word alone, to the glory of God alone. It wasn't that he gave alms to the Jewish people and that he was a nice guy. He needed the gospel message of salvation. So in verse 45, the six Jewish believers were astonished. They were amazed. They were shocked by God's love for these people because their entire culture was about hating these people. They were shocked by God's love for them. For people made in his own image, they were witnesses of God's saving grace for the most, from their opinion, undesirable people on the planet. And Peter went to them, and he was obedient to the Great Commission. So Acts 11:18, we see that the Jewish believers heard this and they quieted down and glorified God saying this, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also repentance that leads to life. Who knew? Salvation is exclusively inclusive for an individual from any ethnic background for whom God has granted repentance leading to life. So today you have to ask yourself, you have to ask your family members, a very important question. Your answer has eternal consequences. Has God granted you repentance? Will that be a conversation in your own household today? Has God given you that gift of repentance? Have you turned? It's his gift. If he has, your life will be one of which you mourn over your sin. Sin will become increasingly every day so dissatisfying you'll want to do anything you can to get rid of it. And you know what? We carry this curse until we die. 
It's not going away, but God graciously cleanses us. Even those who are former racists know that God has cleansed them from their sin of partiality. It's not the ultimate sin. If God has given you the gift of repentance then, and you confess your sins to him, he is faithful and righteous to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Don't we know that from 1 John chapter 1, verse 9? If you say you haven't sinned, you make God a liar, the text says in 1 John, and his word isn't in you. And you will one day meet your Lord Jesus Christ, your master. But when you do, he will pronounce judgment. Depart from me, I never knew you. That's the message that Peter had to bring to this household. Let's think about Acts chapter 10 today. You know, regardless of your ethnicity, for God to save you, you must believe in Jesus' gospel. You must believe so that he may grant forgiveness. He declares that the gospel is for people of every ethnicity. But how did they demonstrate submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ? We see it in verses 47 through 48. You see, Peter said, he, he followed his superior officer's command from Matthew. We read it, Matthew 28, 16 through 20. He says, we've got to baptize these guys. They're believers. Are you a believer, a professing believer, and you've refused to be baptized? I've seen your baptismal over here. It's kind of cool. In the cattle trough. Now's the time. It's time to move forward and to declare your allegiance to Christ. Go under the waters of baptism. Baptism is simply an outward expression of an inward change. God has changed my life, and I want to tell the world that I am a new person in Christ. I'm looking at the clock because I want to take just a moment longer. I have in my notes. If I don't have time, tell them to do this at home. I have time, so I'm going to take it. I'm going to take the time. Chapter 11 is a summary of chapter 10, and I just want to read it. And I want you to be thinking about, visualizing what we've already talked about in your mind, about how Peter relays to the Jewish people in Jerusalem what happened way back in Caesarea about leading the Gentiles to Christ. Now watch this in chapter 11, verse 1. We're going to read all the way down through verse 18, and then we'll close. Now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? It's not in the text, but read in the text. We don't do that with those people. You know, you could be thrown in jail for that, handcuffed and locked away for good. You went to those people? Verse 3, you went to the uncircumcised men and ate with them, but Peter began speaking and proceeded to explain to them an orderly sequence. In other words, line upon line, guys, here's what happened. But before you fire arrows at me, let me just tell you what happened. Verse 5, I was in the city of Joppa. I was praying. And I was in a trance, and I saw a vision, an object coming down like a great sheet lowered by the four corners from the sky, and it came right down to me. And when I'd fixed my eyes, my, my gaze on it, and was observing it, I saw four-footed animals of the earth and wild beasts and crawling creatures. Those are bugs, like icky, 
girls icky, bugs. Little girls, not big girls. The birds of the air, he sees all these things. Verse 7, I also heard a voice saying to me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Now you got to think about the guys that he's telling this story to. You can't eat that stuff, Peter. That's forbidden. That's what they're thinking. Verse 8, but I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing unholy or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a voice from heaven answered a second time, what God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. This happened three times. He's telling them, this happened three times. I was like, Lord, I'm not eating this stuff. And everything was drawn back up into the sky. And behold, he wants them to see it. Behold, fix your eyes on what I'm saying. At that moment, three men appeared at the house in which I was staying. That was in Joppa. Having been sent to me from Caesarea. Remember a 30-mile walk? And the Spirit told me to go to them without misgivings. These six brethren, remember the six guys that were with him? He said they were here. They also went with me, and we entered the man's house. And you could see them sitting on their seat, edges of their seat. You did what? You went into that racial category's house? Made them very angry. Verse 13. And he reported to us how he had seen an angel standing in his own house saying, send to Joppa and have Simon, who is also called Peter, brought here, and he will speak words to you which will, uh, by which you will be saved, you and your whole household. This is what he's telling his Jewish counterparts. I'm just doing what, what I was told to do. Verse 15, and as he began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as he did upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave them the same gifts as he gave us also, after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Arrest me if you will, but I will not stop talking about this man and the gospel. Verse 18, and when they heard this, they all quieted down. I love this. Verse 18, and they glorified God saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles, to the ethnicities, also the repentance that leads to life. Well done, Peter. Well done. You risked your life. You could have been thrown in jail. You sat down and you ate with people that were despised and you loved them and cared for them. And you fed them. Well done. So there are five scenes to highlight the exclusivity of the gospel. In this section of Scripture and Acts, salvation is for people of any ethnicity. Salvation is for people who know Jesus is Lord. Salvation is for people who testify of Jesus' resurrection, and it's for people who are forgiven. Salvation is for people who submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We do that here in Bernie, Texas, and we do it all over the world where the gospel is preached, and shepherds are trained to speak to their own people the words of God. And we're shocked that those people would come to Christ. But you know what? They're shocked that we would come to Christ. Let's stop the sin of partiality and get busy with the gospel. Lord, we're thankful 
We're thankful for you that you empowered Peter to be faithful to you. Lord, no doubt he was afraid. He was scared. He was a, a violator of the laws of cultural norms, and yet he went. And he was faithful to proclaim the gospel. And through that, you saved not just Cornelius and, and he alone, but his entire household. The Holy Spirit came upon them and overpowered them, and they demonstrated their faith. Their life was under new management because they went under the waters of baptism and tested, or testified of Christ. We know that baptism doesn't save us. We know that Christ saves us. But we also know that our baptism is a testimony to the world, that we are a new creature. Lord, I thank you for this church. I thank you for those individuals in this church who make up this body, who serve you well. I pray for your success as they point to you in this culture, that many would come to Christ because the truth of the gospel is made much of here and that many come to know you. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.